So this is week zero, uh, and so we're not in Ephesians, we're actually in Acts. And I don't have the whole text up here because it's a big text, but if you want to turn in your Bibles or tap on your phones to Acts chapter 18, uh, the end of 18 and 19 is where Paul is in Ephesians, in Ephesus. And uh, so that's what we're going to look at is from the book of Acts, uh, Paul in Ephesus. So Ephesus is a city that Paul visited about 10 years prior to writing the letter of the Ephesians, okay? So when you're reading the letter to the Ephesians, you're reading a letter that Paul is writing while he's in prison in Rome to a city that he had spent some time in previously and planted a church in. And one of the great things about reading the New Testament and the letters of Paul is that we almost get a great deal of context by first looking into Acts, as I mentioned. And the book of Acts was written by Luke. Uh, and Luke is the same man who wrote... Luke, yeah, you got it. All right. Good, you're awake this morning. I'm just checking. Just checking. Luke is the guy who wrote Luke. And he wrote Acts as well. And Luke is one of my favorite people in the whole New Testament because Luke is like me. He is not a Jewish person. He's a Gentile. He's not a person who met Jesus personally. He is just a random citizen who heard the gospel and came to Christ, just like all of us, right? And so Luke is kind of neat because he's not an apostle. He's not a disciple. He's just a Gentile who heard the gospel, came to Christ, and then started following Paul and some of the disciples around so that he could write that gospel and so that he could write the Acts of the Apostles or that early church account as he followed Paul and Barnabas and others around as they did their missionary journeys. And so it's in the book of Acts that we first read about the city of Ephesus. And we get a glimpse at the time that Paul spent there, which is amazing for us to get context for this letter that we're about to study. And uh, if you don't have a life group yet, you can still get a life group because, like I said, they haven't actually started. They're starting this week, so you can get into one if you haven't got one. And uh, it's just good to be in a life group. That's where things happen in terms of being applying the text to your life. And there's snacks, too, usually, so that's good, too. And uh, so get in a life group and, and you meet nice people and all of that stuff and you get prayed for and you get parenting help and grandparenting help and you might get a job offer. I mean, everything happens in life group, okay? Like everything happens in life groups. That's where church happens, all right? So get into a life group. So what we're going to do is look at Paul's time in Ephesus in the book of Acts and, and what that visit and those events teach us today and also how they prepare us for the study to come. And it's chapters 18 and 19. And, and we see here that Paul's first visit was very short after living in Corinth for one and a half years which he then wrote a letter to the Corinthians. He was living in Corinth in Acts 18, 11, and he meets Priscilla and Aquila, uh, two Christians that we hear about a few times in Acts and later in Paul's letters. And he leaves Corinth and he takes Priscilla and Aquila to Ephesus with him, which is straight across the Aegean Sea. And I put a map up here just so you get some context. Um, Corinth is in Greece. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. So Paul basically leaves Corinth. He heads straight across the Aegean Sea and he lands in the port of Ephesus, and he stays there very briefly. He's on his way back to Israel. And uh, Acts 18, 18 to 21 uh, says that when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, and he sail, and then he, he sails away from the port there. And he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, who likely plant the church in their house, and that's referred to in 1 Corinthians, and he returns to Antioch uh, and ends his journey. And then uh, during the time when Paul is away and Priscilla and Aquila are still in Ephesus, this is when Apollos shows up. Okay, you with me now? So Apollos shows up in Ephesus after Paul leaves and he encounters Priscilla and Aquila and he's 
preaching basically out of the teaching of John the Baptist. He hasn't had the full gospel from Jesus and from Paul. And so Priscilla and Aquila actually straighten him out a little bit uh, on his doctrine. And he becomes a really powerful evangelist. Um, in uh, chapter 18 there, you can see 24 to 28 talks about Apollos. And, and I think Apollos is the guy who, this is my personal opinion, I think he wrote the book of Hebrews, since we don't have a clear author of who wrote the book of Hebrews. And it doesn't seem like it's Paul's writing. I think it's Apollos because it specifically says that he is an evangelist or he has a great testimony to the Jewish people. And the book of Hebrews really is an apologetic argument aimed at Jewish people. And it's debatable who wrote Hebrews. It may not be Apollos or, you know, we'll find out in heaven when we get there and I'll collect on my bets. Um, it could be a lot of different people, but it could be Apollos. We'll go with that. I like that idea. Um, okay, so now we get to Acts 19. Okay, so this is all just context that you understand. Ephesus is a city. It's a real place. It's a place that Paul visited. Priscilla and Aquila were there. Apollos was there. A church was planted there. Okay, it's a city that uh, had never heard the gospel really until they arrived and there was no presence of Christianity in that city. And then in Acts 19, Paul now comes back to Ephesus after just passing through. And this is a couple years later, about three years later, probably around 54 AD at this point, And he stays this time for almost three years to strengthen the church. And it's the longest time really that he spent anywhere. But of all that time, we really just have glimpses of it here in Acts of, of what he did in those two and a half to three years in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, the city itself, is kind of the gateway to Asia Minor, as you saw in that map. It's at the mouth of, of the Caister River, and uh, in that way, Ephesus is similar to Corinth, being a port city and a throughway city into a whole country, Asia Minor. Uh, at the time, it was sort of a strategic hub of the seven churches uh, that John mentions and Jesus has a message to in Revelation. There's Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And, and so John, like in 30 or 35 years, is going to write about the church in Ephesus as well. And we see that it's multicultural. It was a seat of Roman justice. Roman governors would come here and sit in court and make decisions uh, from time to time. Uh, and it was um, this, it also uh, was the place where the uh, sort of Pan-Asian games took place. And so the, the, the games that led into the Olympics took place in Ephesus. And so if you were walking down the street in Ephesus, you might see famous athletes on the street. Uh, you might see famous politicians from Rome on the street. Uh, political climbers. Um, and on top of all of that, Ephesus had the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the natural world, which I'm going to touch on later. But this Temple of Artemis drove the tourism of Ephesus. So this is a city that's hustling, it's bustling, it's filled with activity, it's filled with uh, wealth, it's politicians, athletes, everything you can imagine in this city. And into all of this, into this crazy metropolis, this strange little Jewish man, Paul, is called to preach the gospel and to build a church. This is what he's there to do. And it's an exciting time in Ephesus for Paul for those two years. And all of chapter 19 sort of describes the excitement going on there. It gives us a, a good sense of the condition of Ephesus we just reviewed. There's Jews and Greeks and Christians all mixed together in the same city. 
Paul debated with Jewish people in the synagogue, it says uh, in verse 9, and some believed and he discipled those in another place and yet others spoke against the gospel. And there was a very public contest for the hearts and minds of the people. There was a spiritual battle going on. As you look in the first part of Acts 19 there, it says that Paul was performing, or God was performing miracles through Paul. And then others in the city were being overtaken by evil spirits. And there was Jewish guys there, we're going to talk about later, who were trying to cast out the evil spirits. So there's a spiritual battle going on in the city and in the church. And then, um, you know, these Jewish exorcists come along to try to cast out those spirits. And the spirits respond to them, that sort of famous scene that's, you know, somewhat comical. You know, where they try to cast out the spirits and, and the evil spirit says, well, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Right? And then he like falls on them and beats them up and it says they ran from the house naked. Like that's a beating when you don't even get to take your clothes with you. Right? So this, this is what's going on in the city. This is the stuff that's happening while Paul is there. And the power of the Holy Spirit causes everyone then to fear and those that believe confess their practices. And some of them that practice magic brought out their magic books and burned them, it says in Acts 19.19. And uh, the number there, I think it's um, the, uh, the amount of money there is about 135 years wages worth of books, right? So I don't know what typical wage might be, but let's say six or seven million dollars worth of stuff is burned up there at that time. So we see that Ephesus is an exciting place to be planting a church, right? It's, <laughs> but that's not all. In addition to the witchcraft and the magic that has captured so many in the city, it was a city of Greek idolatry and consumerism and greed. That's what's going on in Ephesus. This is the church that Paul is trying, this is the city that Paul is trying to plant a church in. And so Ephesus is really a tale of idolatry and greed. Um, that temple that I talked about, the temple to Artemis, or Diana in Rome, it's one of the seven wonders of the world. It was 425 feet long. It was 225 feet wide. It was composed of these white marble columns. It was almost six stories tall. It was 400 feet long. It's on a prominent hillside. It kind of dwarfed the city. And it was opulently decorated. It had all these priceless paintings in it. But the chief attraction was an image that they said was of Artemis, which had fallen from the sky. So literally, probably a meteorite that they figured was some sort of sign from the gods and that they had given the name Artemis and that they worshipped. And the temple was so popular that Ephesus emerged as a religious center of all of Asia. And the impact of the church in Ephesus became so great that we come to the crux of the issue in Acts 19 that Paul's missionary work in the surrounding area and the church was having such an impact that it began to threaten the industry of idol worship in the city. And in Acts 19, 26 to 27, we see the conflict that begins. This is the silversmith of the guild of silversmiths in the city. And he starts to rile up all his fellow smiths who are losing sales because people are worshiping God and following Jesus rather than buying little silver statues of Artemis. And he says, and now you, you see and you hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus. Okay, so the church is having an impact. And in practically the whole province of Asia, all around the city is getting impacted. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all, 
There is danger not only in that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so then there's a riot, basically almost a riot, with some of of Paul's disciples, Gaius and Aristarchus, dragged into the public court in a huge assembly at the outdoor amphitheater and they're chanting for like two hours to drown out the Christians until the, the authorities come to break it up. This is exciting, right? Like, this is church. Can you imagine this going on in Halliburton, right? Like, we just have, we have such an impact on our city that whole industries that are opposed to the gospel start shutting down, and then people start attacking us, and then we're out trying to defend ourselves out in the park, and the whole city's like chanting, trying to drown us out. Like, that's church happening. That's what that is. This is how things are happening here in Ephesus. And you see here the context that the church in Ephesus is set in. Or more specifically for our case, and this is what I want us to look at today, the context in which Christians living in Ephesus are set in. Because Christians have to try to live out their Christian life and their Christian testimony in this environment. While this is happening and after this happens, right? They have to identify with those people that are being attacked and almost cause a riot in the city. And so we see the context now into which six or seven years later, as we read the book of the Ephesians, now six or seven years later, Paul is gone. He's ended up in Rome, not the way he expected, but he's in prison. And he's writing this letter back to this church. He's writing the letter of Ephesians back to these people, this group of Christians in this city. This is the letter inspired by the Holy Spirit that we have in our Bibles today. It's Ephesians. And so the question that this context raises and the question that Paul is going to answer as he thinks of his friends in Ephesus and he thinks about the Christians now in the years since that have come to know the Lord and been baptized and are part of the growing church there, the question that he wants to answer or the encouragement that he wants to give them is, how are we meant to live as Christians in light of this kind of culture? What encouragement can Paul give people living in that kind of a city filled with politicians and social climbers and famous athletes and a whole industry that is set up for idol worship that has an undercurrent of hatred towards Christianity. How are they meant to live as Christians in light of that culture? What is that culture? It's a culture on one hand enamored by and seeking after spiritualism in the occult. There There was all the evil spirits and the possession that was taking place and the magic and the witchcraft and the books that they had to burn. So on one hand, it was enamored with spiritualism and the occult. It was a culture, on the other hand, that was centered around the worship of idols, Artemis being the largest of them, but idols in general. A culture that is centered around the exploitation of celebrity and wealth, that they just wanted to get wealthy off of the exploitation of their city and their temple. A culture that was openly opposed to Christian beliefs, clearly, by the riot that almost happened. A culture that ultimately, if you read the text carefully, is basically triggered by identity politics. They are upset that you are challenging the status quo. You have to believe what we believe, or we will overthrow you. We will try to drown you out. Does that sound like a culture that we know? Right? Even the officials recognized that the people that had the complaint against the Christians in the church and Paul had no complaint. He says in, in chapter 19, verse 37, that the Christians were not attacking Artemis or blaspheming. All they were doing was minding their own business, promoting their own faith. But that's not good enough that you don't, that you just tolerate 
culture, you have to celebrate it or affirm it or people react against it. That's what was happening in Ephesus. But now what we do is we look and we see God at work through His church and His people in that culture. And what we discover here in Acts 19 is a description of the confrontation of the power of the living God with a city that has lost to spiritualism and the occult and idol worship and greed. Let me say that again. So what, what Acts is, when you read Acts 19, it is the confrontation of the power of the living God when the power of that living God impacts a city that is completely lost to spiritualism, the occult, idol worship, and greed. You see in Acts 19 the confrontation of that power. The power of God comes to this city dramatically, and the power of God transforms this city. So how is God working in this culture in Acts 19? And the emphasis that I want to see you repeated through here is is the Word and the Spirit and the transformation that comes forth from the Word being preached, the Word being followed, the Word being extolled, the Word increasing. And so Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos lay the groundwork. It says in verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verse 28, that they showed by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. By the Word of God, by the Scriptures, they showed that Jesus was the Christ. And then Paul comes, first of all, there's the proclamation of God's word. Paul comes and is reasoning from scripture in the synagogues and from the few who hear and respond to the gospel, he builds into his disciples daily, it says at the end of chapter 18 there, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus for two years. And the word spread from that lecture hall. So Paul preached from the word in the synagogue and then those who believed, he took to a lecture hall and he discipled them daily. And it says uh, in verse 19 there, or sorry, chapter 19, verses 8 to 10, it says, eventually all residents of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. Again, heard the word of the Lord. So it starts, this, this presence of the power of God coming into a city like Ephesus or a culture like ours starts with people hearing the gospel because it's proclaimed from Scripture, literally from the word of the Lord. And so how can this happen from this little lecture hall in town? Paul is teaching faithfully from Scripture and he is teaching committed followers who are sitting under the teaching of, his, of, the, of the Bible. And God honors the proclamation of his word. And as God honors the proclamation of his word, it spreads outward and everybody hears. Not that Paul is a great speaker. He confesses in other books that he is not a good speaker. It's not that the word that they hear is, is the word of the Lord. It's the gospel. The word that they hear is not that there's a big crowd in Ephesus or there's something going on and you have to go hear it. What they heard was Jesus is Christ. It's the gospel. It's the word of the Lord that is proclaimed and God honors the proclamation of his word. So that's the first thing is there's the proclamation of God's word and disciples and followers of Christ who sit faithfully under the teaching of that world word and then proclaim that word in their community. But then the other thing that we see here, when the power of God impacts this city, the second thing is the power and regeneration and salvation that comes from the proclamation of the word. Because accompanying the word of God, and what comes along when the word of God is proclaimed, in this case comes miracles to heal and overcome bondage. And then it says, notice again in verse 11 to 17, it says, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So it's still talking about the proclamation of the word. Even while all these miracles are going on, even while people are being healed and demons are being cast out, all of this miraculous, extraordinarily miraculous stuff, Luke says, is happening The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It comes back to the speaking of the gospel in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so the miracles came with the word of God. 
And, it, and the word was extolled by the miracles. God did the miracles through Paul. Now, people are not miracle workers. God is a miracle worker. Okay? It doesn't say Paul did miracles. It says God did miracles through Paul. And, th- and then he says, God was doing extraordinary miracles. Now, that's interesting because I guess Luke felt that there were ordinary miracles and extraordinary miracles, right? And, and, and we get sort of caught up in this in understanding that, that, that we kind of think of only the extraordinary miracles are the miracles, But Luke says, no, there's ordinary miracles too. The miracles that we were seeing here in Acts, even Luke says, in the time of the apostles, he says, this is extraordinary. The amount of demons being cast out, the amount of people being healed, how they're being healed, all of this stuff is extraordinary. And Luke is saying here that this kind of appearance of the power of God was unusual. Not that it can't happen, but that it was incredible even to Luke. And all the things that Luke had seen, he said, these are extraordinary miracles miracles but the extraordinary miracles that are taking place in acts this is what i want you to see the connection to they point us towards the ordinary function of the word of god and the ordinary if we want to call it that the ordinary miracles of regeneration and redemption and salvation what is happening in these miracles is people are being healed and people are being set free from spiritual bondage right And Luke is saying these extraordinary miracles of physical healing and people being set free from possession are taking place. But the extraordinary here is pointing to what we would call the ordinary miracle that when the word of God is proclaimed, people are healed and people are set free and redeemed from bondage. Is that not true? When the word of God, when the gospel comes into your life, healing begins to happen. It happens in your own life. It begins to happen in relationships. It begins to happen in your marriage. It begins to happen between you and God, obviously, right? You begin to be set free. All those things that you were bound up in begin to be set free. And so that is a miracle, and I don't want us to lose sight of that. Because God is performing the ordinary miracle to heal our broken heart and to regenerate our dead souls, and to set us free and save us from the bondage of evil and sin. What does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's a miracle when that happens. The music team and I pray together before every service almost. And then there's another pre-service prayer that everyone's welcome to at 9 a.m. as well. And if anyone has been at any of those or just a few of those, they will have heard me pray for this specific miracle. It is a miracle when someone who is dead in their sins with no desire to seek God, who are enemies of God, who are suddenly, by the proclamation of the word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, are regenerated and brought to life and they are able to now see and taste and touch the goodness of God and are redeemed. That's a miracle. That's a miracle when a dead heart comes alive and people who couldn't see God, couldn't touch God, couldn't taste and see that He is good, suddenly taste and see that God is good because what was dead is now alive. And it's a miracle when this happens. It's a miracle of salvation. And it comes right back to the proclamation of Jesus. Then the name of Jesus is extolled and that's the common thread through all of this. And then we see in the example of the seven sons of Sceva. Sounds like a rock band name, seven sons of Sceva. (laughs) Then we see in the seven sons of Sceva how this name of Jesus, when we talk about the name of Jesus, it is not the same as magic. There is a, there's a 
There's a contrast that's being made here. It is not some sort of incantation or religious spell that just anybody can use. These seven sons of this exorcist try to use the name of Jesus as a prop in their magic exorcism. And the, and, and, and the demon says, who are you? I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but I don't know you. You don't have any relationship with the Jesus you name. You're just, you're just trying to invoke the name of Jesus like some sort of incantation. You don't actually know Jesus, but more importantly, he doesn't know you. Jesus isn't here with you. So then he beats him up, sends him out. The message here is that we're not going to be victorious just playing at evangelism. We're not going to set anyone free just by following programs or following systems. The miracle doesn't happen because of 12-step programs. It only happens when true disciples of Jesus are bringing the power of the Holy Spirit into the situation. When we try and do evangelism, we try and set people free, we try and heal relationships, we try and free people from addiction and bondage, and we try to free people from the idols that they worship. And if we try to do that without the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are going to get thrashed by this culture. They're going to eat us alive out there. They're going to beat us up and send us back naked if we try to do this without the actual power of the Holy Spirit in what we're doing. Just like happened to the seven sons of Sceva. But what we see here is that when the word of God is proclaimed, when faithful disciples sit under the teaching of that word, when the name of Jesus is proclaimed by the disciples and by people who are following Christ, people are healed, people are set free from bondage. That's what's taking place in Ephesus. And then, as you keep going, what we see, finally, the third point is sanctification and transformation. And so there was proclamation of the Word of God and Scripture, which led to greater extolling of the Lord Jesus through miracles of people being set free and overcoming bondage. And then we see sanctification and transformation taking place. People are repenting and transforming their lives. It says in 1918, it says, Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. They burned their magic books and got rid of them. So what is magic in this context? Magic, the idolatry of Artemis that was pervasive in this city, in short, is false hope. This is what the people in this culture realized, is that they had been putting their hope in the wrong things all this time. They had been putting their hope in magic incantations. They had been putting their hope in potions. They had been putting their hope in, you know, sacrificing the right thing to Artemis at the right time. They had been putting their hope in a whole bunch of things that were ultimately failing them. And then Paul comes along with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, and, and they start preaching the proclamation of the word of God, of Jesus Christ, of the gospel, of the good news that there is a God and that God loves you and that he has died for you and set you free from your sins and can set you free from the bondage that you're captured in and that he can heal you. And when they put their hope in that thing, they realize that all their hope was in the wrong things before. They tried to use magic and Artemis worship as a means of manipulating the gods or manipulating their lives for the better. And the only hope they had for power over their circumstances was to count on magic or to appease Artemis or to appease some other god. It was used to manipulate others. It was used to manipulate the gods. But then Paul comes with the gospel and he says, you can't offer anything to God that he needs. He's not swayed by anything you try to do. You are bankrupt. You have nothing. But the good news is he knows and he's done everything for you already. 
God is not asking you to give him something. God has already done something for you and is giving it to you. And Paul says, your spells and your potions and drugs have only proven themselves useless in providing you any hope. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. And what happens is the people start turning away from false hopes in false gods to true hope in Jesus. And they bring their false hopes very literally. Again, everything in Ephesus is very, in, in Acts here is very literal, taking place in the city. They bring their false hopes and, and, and all their false beliefs and they pile them up in a big pile and they set them on fire and they burn all those false hopes. Boy, don't you know some people that you just wish would burn their false hope? They're trusting in alcohol or they're trusting in even their family. They're trusting in following some great teacher. They're, they're trusting in you know, something that they've got their hope fixed on that is going to make them feel better. And that hope lets them down and lets them down and lets them down. And we just wish they would burn it and put their hope in Christ. That's what's taking place here. People are being healed. People are being set free from bondage. People are giving up their false hopes and they are burning their false hopes because they've put their hope in Christ Jesus. Now notice who it is that are bringing their books of magic to burn. It says, many of those who were believers came confessing and brought their books. It's people who have come to believe in Jesus Christ, who have come to the realization that their old way of life cannot continue with the new life that they have in Jesus, and they got to burn all this old life stuff. This is sanctification. This is transformation. We're not perfect now. We won't be perfect until glory. But the process starts now. We are a new creation and we start burning away the old. We start transforming. This is a whole community of God's people who are turning away from old ways that they followed to new ways. They are turning away from darkness to light. They are turning away from crooked paths to straight paths. This is sanctification. And then we see, because it always comes back to the word of the Lord. Look what it says in verse 18 to 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What keeps happening here is the word of the Lord, the scriptures, the Bible, the gospel keeps prevailing. It started with arguing with Jews in the synagogue, and then he got some disciples. Some of them hated it. Some of them followed him. He said, let's go get a school. He goes to a school, the lecture hall of Tyrannius. He teaches them daily, and then the word starts to spread, and then following the word comes the power of God to heal and set people free and release them from bondage, and the word of God is extolled because of that. And then because the word of God is extolled, believers start to realize that they got to let go of their old life and burn the false idols and the false hopes that they have, and sanctify and transformation starts to happen. And this is what is driving the city crazy because they can't sell their silver idols anymore. Because the entire idol and false hope industry of the city is getting shut down because the power of the living God is invading Ephesus. It says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And this is what I take from that, that the word of the Lord will not increase or grow in influence as long as the people of God to continue to hold on to old sinful ways. What testimony would it be in Ephesus if these people heard the word of God, heard the gospel, said that they believed in Jesus, and then kept living the exact same way they did for the next 10 years? 
Would there be any increase in the, any prevailing in the Word of God in that city? There would not be. There will be no increase. There will be no prevailing mightily of the Word of God until the people of God, many of those who were believers came confessing and brought their books. They are the ones that have to change their lives. And so when I think of our culture, I think, how can we expect the Word of God to prevail mightily and increase if the people of God themselves are not willing to give up their false hopes and burn their old way of life. Because when the world sees that the old is gone and the new is come, that's when the Word of the Lord increases and prevails in that culture. The Word doesn't need to increase or change. Let me make that clear. The, the Word of God does not increase. The Word of God does not have any more strength, but it prevails in the culture with more strength when the disciples follow it and when their lives change. Its influence over a culture or a city changes. And so when revival comes to a town or a city, then what happens is people turn from their self-medication and they turn from their idolatry and turn from putting their hope in money and putting their hope in political power, putting their hope in reputation or fame or whatever their false hope is in and they put their hope in Jesus and all of a sudden there's no more drug dealers and there's no more palm readers and there's no more celebrity worship on American Idol or Us Weekly or whatever it is and there's no more millions of twits following Twitter feeds on rap stars and singers and models, or whatever it is that people follow on Twitter. And all of a sudden, those industries collapse. Could you imagine if, like, Beyonce couldn't fill a stadium anymore? Because just nobody wants to hear what it is she's selling. That's what was happening in Ephesus. Industries were collapsing because the Word of God was prevailing mightily. And all those false hope industries collapse when the true hope of the gospel comes. And as a result, the word of the Lord continues to increase and prevail. Back to the word again. It never stops being about the word. It's like a feedback loop. The word is preached. The word goes out. The power of the word sets people free. And then the word of the Lord is extolled. And then the word of the Lord continues to increase and have more prevalence in the culture. And it just starts all over again. And more people get saved. And more people are set free. And the word of the Lord is extolled more. And it just keeps building and building until the whole city of Ephesus grinds to a halt over what is happening. And they can't take it. And then there's the resistance. And I'm not going to go over the riot a whole bunch here, but the riot starts, spreads through the because of the spread of the gospel. So many lives are changing that the industry starts to shut down. But the reality for us when we read about that riot is that we have to expect this as well. We will face resistance. What we learn here is that we are not at home in this world once we change allegiance to Jesus Christ. Once your allegiance shifts from the world to Jesus, you're no longer citizens here anymore. We're now citizens of heaven. We're now strangers in a strange land. We're now aliens. We're different, and the world notices that we're different. The people of Ephesus were not acting like Ephesians anymore. They're like, what's going on? That's not what our city is about. They just weren't acting like Ephesians. Their way of life was different. And even though that they were not threatening anyone, they were not trying to overthrow anything, they were not trying to change the government, they were not trying to change the laws, they were not trying to change the politics, they were not, all they wanted to do was tell people about the hope of Jesus Christ. That's all they had to do. They didn't have to threaten anybody. And the city turned on them. There was resistance. 
And they had to learn how to live as strangers in their own city. They had to learn to live as aliens in a foreign country. And so I don't want us to lose this. This is the point, is that Paul is writing a letter. He's writing a letter to the church at Ephesus. It was probably a circular letter. It went to all seven of those churches, probably, in the Asian area and of Asia Minor. And he's writing a church to a church, yeah. He's writing a letter to a church, but he's writing a letter to Christians. He's writing a letter to people who have to know how do we now live our life in the face of this culture? How do we live with a people who will riot against us? How do we live in this new hope while we're still here? And that's the context that Paul writes the letter to Ephesus and what it teaches. So if we want to impact Halliburton, if we want to impact this county, if we want to impact this province, if we want to impact this country, what can we learn here? Well, first of all, a city is transformed when the word of God is proclaimed. So we're off to a good start. I think the word of God is proclaimed here. Then a city is transformed when disciples sit under sound teaching. We saw that, right? Paul took his disciples, he taught them daily. And then when those disciples operate in the power of the word, not on their own power, God performed miracles through Paul. Not Paul performing miracles, God performed miracles. When we operate in the power of the word of God, he will perform miracles to heal and to save and to redeem and to bring people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, to take them from lies into truth, to take them from despair into hope. And every time that happens, just remember it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Because we are dead in our sins. And just like Jesus calls to Lazarus, come forth, God calls us and wakes us up when we're dead. And it's a miracle. And that miracle happens because of the power of the word of God being proclaimed and the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. When the ordinary miracle of regeneration and salvation leads then to sanctification and transformation, this is how it really starts to happen. Is It's not just I, I went forward at summer camp and you know, gave my life to Christ 35 years ago, but I'm still living the exact same life I would have lived otherwise. Right? It's not just you know, I go to church, but then I chew my people out when I'm at work. It's not just I go to church, but then, you know, my real hope is in the fact that, you know, I can get a little bit loaded every night on half a bottle of wine. That's where my real joy is, right? No, no. A city is transformed, a culture is transformed when the believers begin to burn their false hopes and start living sanctified and transformed lives. And then the word increases and its influence on the culture, and it just keeps going and it keeps cycling. It just keeps growing until it has an impact on the whole culture. So we're going to sit under the teaching of the word. We're going to sit under the teaching of the word, specifically the Apostle Paul's instruction to the Ephesians for the next nine weeks. And we are going to witness the miracle of healing and redemption and regenerated lives, and we are going to be transformed. That's how we make this work here at Lakeside. So this letter that Paul writes to this city in Ephesus, this church, these Christians, it comes seven years later. How is Paul equipping his saints then? Is that equipping and that that equipping of these people in Ephesus, is that going to be relevant to us? Aren't we fighting the same fight? We're, We're fighting the same fight that these Ephesians are fighting. We are living in the same culture that they are living in. If we equip ourselves with the same knowledge, And Paul literally summarizes the letter to Ephesians how? In Ephesians chapter 6, what's the famous part of Ephesians chapter 6? Armor of God, right? 
Paul literally summarizes his letter by saying, I am giving you armor to put on. (laughs) Equip yourself. If we equip ourselves with this same knowledge, then we can expect that God will show up, give us the same victory that Paul had, give us the same results. This is what we can expect in Paul's letter, the equipping that we need to be strong and healthy church, to be strong and healthy Christians, to live out our faith in a culture that holds many values that are inconsistent to us. That's what the letter to the Ephesians is about. That's what we're studying for the next nine weeks. Let's pray. Father God, wow, we pray for this miracle. We love the extraordinary miracles, and we praise you when people are healed and set free, when the enemy is overthrown. But Lord, I pray even now just for the ordinary miracle. How can we even call it ordinary? The extraordinary miracle of salvation. That people that we know right now, and right now I just ask, people can be praying right now where you're sitting. You know people in your family. You know people in your life who are in bondage, who are in blindness, who have not been transformed by the message of the gospel, who are filled with false hope. It could literally be a false hope in magic and occultism, just like in Ephesus. Or it could be a false hope in something else, I don't know, money, whatever health. Father, I just pray right now that you would do the ordinary miracle of setting them free. It's by your power and your spirit that their hearts are regenerated. And so, Lord, I pray as we pray, you would hear our prayers. Father, we long to see this extraordinary miracle of people coming to know you and being set free. And Lord, I pray for us, for the second part of that, chapter 19, that we would burn our false hopes, that we would live sanctified and transformed lives, that people would see clearly that our hope is not in the hopes of the world. That was the difference. Their hope was not in Artemis. Their hope was not in magic books. Their hope was not in politics. Their hope was not in celebrity. Their hope was in you. And Father, we have to show people where our true hope lies. Father, help us to do that. Help us to have your word on our lips all the time. So when people say, how do you get through this? Or how do you get through that? Or how do I do this? Or why this? First thing, well, Jesus is where we'll start. That's where hope lies. Father, help us to live that transformed life and show where our hope is. In Christ's name, amen.